Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, the, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. <laughs> to the one who walks among the seven lampstands, our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, let us with confidence draw near to your throne this morning to find grace and mercy in our time of need. Tend to your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the theological story and film recently produced entitled Finding Nemo, we're given an astute observation of human nature. In this underwater tale of a father clownfish desperately trying to find his lost son, we're introduced to many characters from the sea life and animal world. As we go from character to character, we find that each is provided with an elaborate vocabulary. They use this uh, language, vocabulary, to tell an amazing story, but there is one animal in particular that only is able to say one word. This one word tells us that this animal isn't very smart, almost imbecilic. While all of God's creatures are magnificent and amazing, I admit that I find myself muttering at times the very words that this animal can sometimes draw to mind. Stupid seagulls. These are the same animals that have that one word vocabulary in finding Nimble. And the one word that they are able to say is mine. This is one of the first words that we learn to speak when we are very young. We learn those things that we possess or the things that we want to possess and so we quickly learn this word, mine. And if there's someone who takes something that is ours, we say, hey, that's mine. And we learn from Finding Nemo that the one thing more annoying than one seagull saying mine over and over is a whole flock of seagulls saying 
mine and mine over and over again. But for us, we'd like to think that we've gotten over that toddler stage of saying mine. When in actuality, in all truth, we've only gotten more sophisticated in concealing how we say mine. So the purpose of this message is straightforward and very simple. I want to kill the seagull in each and every one of us. And specifically, I want to kill the seagull in us as it relates to Christ's church, where we are tempted to look at the church and say, mine. In Matthew 16, 13 through 20, we are given a fundamentally necessary course correction for how we view the church, think about the church, or understand the church. In fact, this is the very first time the word church is used in the New Testament. Wouldn't we think that the very first time this word is used, that it's giving us something foundational, something elementary. It's a necessary truth upon which all of the other truths that we know of the church are built. Christ lays the bedrock for how we are to think and understand the church. If we are willing to hear what he has to say over the choruses of voices that are saying, mine. This is a big text with many intricacies and can lead to some very big questions. I'm not going to deal with all of those questions today because I want to focus on verse 18. To catch us up to speed on where we are, Jesus is in the district of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. He's just been warning them about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's said, watch out for the leaven, their teaching. It will harm you, it will hurt you, it will infect you, just like leaven spreads in a lump of dough, so their teaching can infect you and spread and cause great damage. Now in this district, Caesarea Philippi, it's a hotbed for paganism. Worshipping Caesar, worshipping the pagan god Pan, Jesus asked his disciples some very important questions. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus here refers to himself with this Old Testament title, Son of Man, from Daniel 7, where there's the Ancient of Days who gives the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is promised to be an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The people have given various opinions about Jesus. Maybe he's John the Baptist, come back to life. Maybe he's the great prophet Elijah, who would come again to prepare the way of the Lord. Maybe he's the prophet Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets of the Old Testament, who are calling people back to the Lord to repent, promising them of God's restoring grace. But Jesus asks his disciples very pointedly, who do you say that I am? Everybody has to do something with Jesus. You can't ignore him. You cannot afford to get him wrong. Because your eternal destiny depends upon who you know Christ to be. There's no pass for getting around it. 
You can't have someone else answer the question for you. It's a question of faith. It's not a question of knowledge. It's not a question concerning your intellect. It's not a, even a question you can study so you might get the right answer. Peter, however, gets it right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter answers with a confession of truthfulness and praise. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the righteous branch. You are the spirit anointed one of God. And then comes further explanation, the son of the living God. This is the question Jesus, being the son of God, has come up over and over again in the gospel of Matthew. First, Satan tempted Jesus by saying, if you are the son of God, then two demon-possessed men, they say to Jesus, what do you have to do with us, O son of God? We get even a realization from the disciples after Jesus walks on the water. Truly, you are the Son of God. But then there's this question back at Jesus' trial. This question then also is risen at his crucifixion with this Roman centurion saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Peter confesses in complete faith and specificity, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The living God is set apart from dead, lifeless idols. The living God who gives life. Those who worship dead, lifeless idols become like them, dead. Those who worship the living God receive life. Jesus then commends Peter for his confession. And he makes this statement that I want us to unpack this morning. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So where do we begin? Well, first, Christ's church is built by him. And I want to begin by looking at that little phrase out of that sentence, I will build my church. I know this is connected to other truths, but let's make sure first we get this right. And before we get to Christ's action, what he promises to do, we have to let two little words saturate our minds because Jesus says, my church. It's Christ's church. It's his possession. He owns it. It is his. The church is no one else's. First and fundamentally, it is Christ's church. Who does the church belong to? It belongs to Christ, the son of the living God. It belongs to the son of man whose dominion is everlasting and whose kingdom cannot be destroyed. But what is fascinating is that Jesus says, my church, and again, this is the first time this word is used in the New Testament. It's in fact one of only three times that it's used in all of the Gospels. So the other two times, Matthew 18, Jesus uses it again. But you notice when Jesus says, my church, his disciples don't go, hold on a second. What is this church that you speak of? I've never heard of this before. They must have some understanding of church. So where did they get this understanding from? They get it from the Old Testament. In fact, in the Greek 
translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, it often uses the word that we get for church, ecclesia. And it's used generally to describe an assembly of people, but more specifically, it's used to describe the assembly of God's people. So what is it that the disciples were hearing? They were hearing that there was going to be a gathering of people, an assembly of people, just like the people of the Old Testament gathered when they gathered to worship Yahweh, so now there was going to be a gathering of people, but this gathering of people was going to be centered around the Messiah, the people of Jesus. And this is directly in line with what the Jews were expecting. A Messiah without a Messianic community would have been unthinkable to any Jew. So the people of Yahweh become the people of the Messiah with Jesus saying, my church, this is my assembly. Remember the Old Testament? It was Yahweh's assembly. This is my church, my assembly, my people. I am the Messiah. He is declaring with supreme and utmost authority that he is the church's Lord. So now let's turn to the action the Lord promises to take toward his church. I will build my church. It is the action of Jesus Christ to actively build his church. The question we're left with, what does it mean for Jesus to build? Does Jesus building his church mean that he will grow it numerically? That is, more people, multiplication of people? Does Jesus building his church mean that he will grow it spiritually? People will grow in holiness, godliness, discernment, spiritual maturity. We see both of these happening in the New Testament. People are added to their number in Acts. Many of Paul's epistles, we see a promise of sanctification among believers. Yet we do not see any specifics of those ideas here. It does not mean they are necessarily excluded. They're just not mentioned explicitly. I think one conclusion we can draw from this promise is that with Christ's promise to build his church, it means that the church will accomplish what God has planned and purposed for the church. In other words, the church will succeed in the plan and purpose for which it was designed as Christ builds his church. So Christ building his church means the church will obey Christ. Christ building his church means the church will live for Christ. Christ building his church means that the church will organize according to Christ's commands. Christ building his church means the church will succeed as he intends it to succeed. Not as the world counts success, not as the world describes what is impressive or meaningful, but it will succeed in its life and testimony as he has so ordained for it to do according to his plan and purpose. Let's take a moment and think about what the Lord does not say. He does not say, you will build your church. To say this would mean the church is ours, and it's all dependent upon us to make the church what it should be and what it needs to be. It's a burden that's too heavy for us to bear. It's not our church and our workmanship is shoddy. 
Christ also does not say, you will build my church. To say this would mean that even though the church is his possession, we need to do him a favor and build his church. Let me help you out, Jesus. Let me build your church for, your, for you. Jesus, you're not up to date on the postmodern era. You don't know what people want, what they need, and what's really important to them. Give us the reins to your church, and we will build it, and you can watch our new techniques and tactics that are needed in the world today. Christ also does not say, I will build your church. As if we own the church, and we've hired Jesus out as a contractor to do the building work, while we direct him to build the way that we want him to build our church. And yet, how often... Do we take all of these other ways that we might think of what Jesus could have said and functionally make them our mentalities? We try to claim the church as our own. We try to build the church how we think the church should be built. Or we diminish Christ's authority by instructing him on how the church should be built. Oh, how easy it is to fold our arms and say, Jesus, I don't like the way that you're building your church. It's not how I would have done it. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't look like Jesus is building his church. We look weak and small and helpless. What is Jesus doing? Look at the church in the world. Let's have the words that the Lord spoke to Job ringing in our ears. Do you remember what the Lord said to Job in Job 38? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Christ built the cosmos and you don't trust him to build his church? He paid for the church with his own blood. He sacrificed himself in order to purchase us to be his people. The church must be built by Christ because that's when it will possess an otherworldliness. When there is no otherworldliness in the church, because man is trying to build his own church. When people come to CFC, do they say, God is among them. The Lord is there. His word is there. There is something different about this place. It is like a taste of heaven, as it should be. Not because you've made it that way, but because Christ is at work.
Christ church is built by him. But Christ church is also built on his apostles. Where was Jesus to build his church? He was to build it, what do we see here in Matthew 16? On Peter. Peter had made the true confession. And notice the confession didn't come from within him. It was an external revelation. Jesus' Father, who is in heaven, revealed the truth to Peter. Peter didn't piece Jesus' identity together through his own rationality, his own intellect, and his own mind. Jesus didn't say, very good, Peter, you figured out who I am on your own. No, this was a supernatural, divine revelation from God the Father to Peter so that Peter understood who Jesus was. It was an intervention by God himself in Peter's life that made it possible for Peter to make this confession. And then Jesus calls Peter Simon Barjona and says, you are Peter. You are the stone or the rock. That's what Peter means, stone or rock. And on you I will build my church. It's unfortunate that we as Protestants have been scared by this verse. The plain, straightforward understanding is that Peter is the rock on which Christ will build his church. Some have twisted it to uphold a doctrine that isn't in the text, to say that there's some perpetual office of Peter that's passed down through the centuries of the Bishop of Rome. This text says nothing about Peter's infallibility. In fact, a few verses later, guess what? Peter's called a stumbling block, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. But what Jesus says here correlates with Ephesians 2.20. If you have your Bibles, just look at that for a moment. Ephesians 2.20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here's verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul says we are those who are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's why the church is to devote itself to the apostles' teaching. Peter is acting as a representative of the apostles, so his confession is the confession of all the apostles. It's still the confession that we hold to, a confession to be believed, to be held by faith. Confession because... It is of the divine revelation from God about the supreme identity of Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. It is the apostles who are initially entrusted with the gospel. It's the apostles who are eyewitnesses to the risen Lord. And while we acknowledge that Christ's church will be built on Peter and the apostles, there is no doubt about the focus of the church. It's clearly still on Christ. He is the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Christ builds his church on the apostles because the apostles continually, faithfully, and urgently point us to Christ. They point us to the gospel. They point us to the truth. 
they exhort us to build our lives on the rock that is Jesus Christ and to live obedient lives that are completely and consistently proclaiming him. What a grace. What a grace that Jesus would say this to Peter and the apostles. What a grace to us. The apostles were ordinary men. Yet Jesus says to Peter and to them, you will be the foundation of my church. And they will be used as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit to lead the church into all the truth. Christ's church is built by him. Christ's church is built upon the apostles. But finally, I want us to see from Matthew 16, Christ's church cannot be destroyed. Christ's church cannot be destroyed. Remember what I said, for Christ to build his church means that the church is accomplishing the purpose and plan of God in his world. And I think the last part of verse 18 is evidence of this. How do you know Christ is building his church? Here is the explanation. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now I've changed my interpretation of this little phrase, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Just out of curiosity, is there some leeway you have for your pastor that he might say sometimes, you know, there's changed my view on this a little bit. Not These aren't major doctrines. This is just a little understanding. It's, it's grown over time, right? Maybe sometimes your pastor might come and say, you know, I've changed a little bit on that. Give him some grace. <laughs> say, that's okay, it's good. Listen to him. All right, so that was a side note, encouragement right there, because I'm saying this, something that's changed in me, <laughs> how I understand this verse. Because here is how I would have used to have preached that verse, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is on the offense. What are gates for? Gates are for defense. Gates are what you put in front of the city to keep the enemy out. Well, we are the church. We are on the offense, and we are going to burst through the gates of hell. And we are going to overtake Satan and his dominions with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and they will not be able to overcome us. We will prevail over them. Sounds good, doesn't it? I think. That's why I used to hold it, right? <laughs> but I think, I think Christ is saying something more. What, what is this word, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oftentimes in the Gospels, in the New Testament, the word for hell is often Gehenna. It talks about this place where there is torment, where there is perpetual fire, those kind of things. What we think about when we think about hell, or specifically the lake of fire. This word that, that Jesus uses, though, is, is different. It's not Gehenna. It's Hadu, or the word that we get for Hades. Hades would just be a general reference to the place of the dead. And I think you know this, but who is the one who has the keys of death and Hades? It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? 
He is the one who has authority over death and Hades, over death and hell in that sense. So what does it mean then when Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail over his church? It means that the church will experience tribulation and persecution and perhaps even martyrdom or death. Because of your faith, you will, and I think that's the teaching of all of God's word, it's not an exception to the rule. We are those who will face persecution, tribulation, and perhaps even death for our faith. But guess what? None of those can overcome you. None of those can destroy you. None of those things can destroy Christ's church. Because we are not the ones who are on the outside bursting through the gates of hell. We are those who, though even though they may take our lives, even though they might persecute us and threaten us, all that they can do is kill us. So what? Why? We have resurrection life. We are those who are going to be bursting out of the gates of hell. We look to the one who says, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive ever, forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Kill me? So what? I will not be imprisoned by the gates of hell. The promise demonstrates the church is not idle or static. The church does not and will not remain in one place. It's on the move. It's moving, and it's even moving in its resurrection life. That's what we have. That's what we possess. That's something that no one can ever take away from us. We are those who conquer by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony. Those who love not their lives, even to death. This is not a promise for us to sit and lick our wounds and feel sorry for ourselves and tell ourselves how bad we have it and how difficult things are and why nobody likes us and everybody hates us and we throw a pity party. We trust the Lord to take care of us. This is a promise for us to move out in the power and the proclamation of the gospel, to live for Jesus and to tell others about Jesus. It is for us to face persecution, tribulation, and death. It's a risk for us, but it's all for the cause of Christ, and it's all trusting in Him to be with us. So how might we take this now and apply it to our lives? Six points, quickly, of application. They all start with an R, so hopefully that's somewhat helpful. How do we take, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How does that intersect with our lives? Well, first, repent of the pride of thinking this is your church. Repent of the pride of thinking that this is your church. 
Listen to what Jesus says again. My church, it's his church. He is the Lord of his church. He is the one who will build this church. It's not your church. So then, two, relinquish the pseudo-control of pretending that this is your church. If you think you have some control in the church, stop pretending that you have control. Christ is the one who has control of his church. Give up that control. In fact, I think you will find it very freeing. Third, reorient your vocabulary away from saying this is your church. This is something that I, I think we fall into somewhat naturally. Like when you drive by or you walk by or, or you pass the church, you say, that's my church. It's Christ's church. Now you might say, well, y- you know what I mean. Say what you mean. There's Christ Church, and that's the local gathering where, where I attend. <laughs> it's his church first and foremost. Reemphasize, number four, reemphasize Christ's headship over his church. He is the head of the church. He is leading the church. He is building the church. He has authority over the church. He is glorious and he is great. And he will never lead you astray. He will never ask you to do something that is to your detriment. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He wants what's best for his church. And his headship is always trustworthy and true. Five, recommit to praying for Christ to fulfill his promise here. Do you know this is how God sovereignly answers prayers? He does it through the prayers of the saints. You praying for the promises that are in his word, he rejoices to answer those prayers. So pray this promise, Christ, build your church. Do it among us. And pray it over and over and over again. And six, rejoice in the work Jesus is doing and will do. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus is at work here now. And Jesus will continue to work in you into the future. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in what he is doing. It is great. And guess what? In him doing the work, he gets all the glory and praise. We don't want any of the glory and praise. We don't want to say, look what we have done to make this church so good and so great. No, we say, look at what Jesus Christ has done to make this church so glorious and so great. What do we need? We do not need a cacophony of chaotic voices frantically shrieking mine. When it comes to the church, instead, we need the almighty, sovereign, commanding voice of Jesus Christ declaring over the church in beautiful, symphonic, and resolved tones, mine, so that our mouths might be stopped, so that our hearts might be refocused, so that our affections might rightly be reordered, 
and our lives might be re-energized for complete obedience. And so our eternal joy might be complete because the church is Christ's.